All right, so as we get into today's message, I wanted to start with a little bit of trivia. I don't know if you saw that in, your, in the bulletin. Okay, um, if you have a pen, you could go ahead and uh, fill that out, okay? As we start today, uh, what is the fastest growing religion in America today? Okay, uh, Christianity, Buddhism, Islam, universalism, or nuns, okay? So just take a few seconds and circle it or write it down or, or just, you know, log it in your brain. Okay, how many of you said Christianity? Nobody. Oh, where is your faith? <laughs> okay, thank you, Emily. Uh, how many of you say Buddhism? Do you guys already know the answer to this? Islam? Islam? No? Universalists? No? Nuns? Okay, okay, okay. Uh, I think you guys already knew the answer to this. Okay, so um, I want us to talk about this a little bit, okay? Uh, uh, talk to your neighbor and someone you didn't come here with, okay? Um, talk to someone uh, who's near you, but someone you didn't come here with, and ask each other, uh, do you know anyone who falls into this category of being nuns, okay? This is someone who is not uh, affiliated with any specific religion, okay? That doesn't mean they're necessarily atheists, okay? It might mean that they're atheists. It might also mean that they're agnostic. Um, but yeah, do you know anyone who falls into this category? And how did this person become uh, a nun, okay? So uh, does, any, does anyone not know what a nun is? It's, okay, so like it's typically when you're filling out a survey and there's like a list of religions, they would always click or circle none of the above, okay? Uh, it's different from universalism because there's actually like a church of universalism where they meet together and they congregate. Universalists, in, in short, universalists kind of believe in everything <laughs> and nuns believe in like nothing. <laughs> so um, if you know anyone who falls into this category, talk to your neighbors about it. We'll, do that for like two minutes, okay? And then we'll kind of share with each other, okay? So go ahead. Here are some of your responses. Um, can you move? All right, so uh, who, does anyone mind like sharing what they or their um, neighbor shared? Who knows any nuns? You don't know any nuns, like you're too young. <laughs> Anyone? Oh, Courtney, yes. You know a lot? Okay, so how did they become nuns? Were they always nuns, and, or did they become that later on? No, I think a lot of them Anyone else? Please, don't be shy. Yeah, because this is all um, 
helping us like understand our culture better. Yes, Jessica? So uh, a lot of them were always nuns to begin with, but some of them like were exposed to how manipulative like religion could be, or how people in that religion could be. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone else? <laughs> okay. Uh, no, they're they're Catholic. Yeah. 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 They just don't go every Sunday, but yeah. Yeah, Emily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so most of these nuns uh, would fall into the category, or they would uh, consider themselves spiritual but not religious, right? Um, they still realize human beings have a spirit, right? Or there's this unseen world that we can't see with our like physical eyes. So a lot of them would be categorized as this as spiritual but not religious. Um, nuns are uh, kind of all over the place, as you might expect. Uh, they're difficult to pin down. A majority of atheists and agnostics, for example, are white men, which is very interesting. Okay? Uh, a vast majority of atheists and agnostics are white men. But nuns are pretty uh, all, all across the board. They're pretty equal, male and female. Uh, most do come from Christian backgrounds, at least in America, uh, and about one-third of them actually attend church sporadically, okay? maybe Easter, Christmas, like one, random Sundays, but they would still consider themselves like uh, nuns, okay? probably some of the people that you're thinking of, Emily. Um, and I read this really interesting article in um, this magazine called The Economist uh, regarding nuns. Okay, and the author of the book, it's called The Nuns. He's a social scientist, Dr. Ryan Barge. He made several observations regarding uh, this group of people. Uh, the one word that's used to describe nuns, uh, their characteristics, is apathy. Apathy. Statistically, they're not only apathetic towards religion, they're also apathetic towards uh, education. <laughs> Um, because a lot of them who've been burned by religion have probably experienced something like that in, in education. So only one in five of these nuns have a bachelor's degree. They're apathetic towards politics. They rarely vote. Uh, but if they do, it's, they're not either like conservative or liberal. Okay? It's, uh, they don't necessarily favor one or the other. And they're apathetic even towards... Uh, giving to good causes or volunteering for good causes. Um, they rarely donate, <laughs> okay, they rarely volunteer, and they're not very altruistic in general, okay? And this is coming from The Economist, okay? This isn't like some religious journal or a Christian book that's like biased or anything like that. 
if you know what the economist is you know it's like a it's really about like the economy okay and like looking at social economic behaviors um, now our mission statement are, is a, a hospitable community for spiritual wanderers okay and I'd like to think that spiritual wanderers are different from nuns spiritual wanderers are people who have questions okay who have doubts in their faith who struggle okay nuns are people who don't want to adhere to anything in many ways um, spiritual wanderers are still uh, seeking out for spiritual things okay we're still spiritually hungry we're still people of faith like uh, longing to live a, a good life whereas nuns have pretty much committed like I'm not gonna adhere to anything I'm not gonna be affiliated with any specific religion or faith uh, I'm just gonna do my own thing many people land in this camp of spiritual but not religious identity because as uh, some of you have said uh, they've gone through this long meandering process of deconstruction uh, deconstructing their faith and many times this is not just instigated by uh, intellectualism okay it's often instigated by a negative personal experience they've had some sort of uh, traumatizing experience in the church maybe they were a part of they have deeper questions that maybe have gone unanswered or maybe even discouraged or they have genuine doubts about their own belief that and they don't have a safe space to be able to like address these doubts now deconstructing faith is not a new thing people have been doing that literally for centuries okay people have been doing that for centuries it's not something that Millennials invented <laughs> in the 21st century. Okay, and I'm certain that some of you have probably gone through your own deconstructing uh, seasons of life of doubt struggles and questions uh, In fact, I would argue that spiritual maturity cannot happen without deconstructing faith. Okay, when we all kind of take on a faith of our own uh, We have to go through this deconstruction period. Okay, I would argue that if you've never gone through a deconstruction period uh, of your faith as an adult, by the time you're an adult, then you have simply inherited someone else's faith that was given to you when you were a child. And typically it's like your parents, okay? Uh, people who never deconstruct their faith um, probably have ignored or don't have many questions, doubts, or struggles like regarding their faith, like deeper, deeper struggles. But when deconstruction happens without reconstruction, okay, deconstruction is when you look at your faith objectively, you take apart the beliefs, okay, and you're able to criticize it, okay, and criticize is not necessarily a negative word, okay, uh, you're objectively able to like analyze it, right, uh, but hopefully the hope is that you're able to put these pieces back together again, okay, deconstruction and reconstruction, all right, but when deconstruction happens without any effort, to put it back together again that's how people end up becoming spiritual but not religious or in this category of nuns now this is dangerous because as the article from the economist suggests when people identify as nuns they become less generous they become less involved with social justice issues and they become less involved politically in short nuns are uh, less altruistic but a part of me is 
sympathetic to many nuns uh, that exist in um, America, but LA County for sure, because many of them can't trust organized religion again, right? Uh, they, they've uh, experienced it, they lived in it, right? And they, many of them have probably been in it for many, many years, but they realize that it's a system that's too toxic. And I have several friends who fall into this category of nuns, and it's not just one place where they experienced it. They ex experienced toxic systems in many, many places, right? And so they just think all organized religion must be this way, but it's not, right? The hope is that it's not. And I think as the people of God, we actually have the ability and the, 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 the skills to be able to bring about change in these toxic systems. So how are we as people of God supposed to respond to toxic systems? And how do we know when toxic systems exist? All right, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 4? If you don't have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, listen in. Um, pull out your Bible app or... Um, yeah, I guess I'm the only one with a physical Bible. <laughs> Who carries Bibles anywhere? Okay, uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 19. He, who is Jesus, he went up to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Amen. All right, so we're looking at the book of Luke today, the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke, okay? And the unique thing about Luke is that Luke is the only non-Jewish author of the New Testament, okay? All of the authors of the New Testament were Jewish, uh, but not Luke, okay? He was Greek. And so he, with, to no surprise, he was writing his version, his story, his gospel of Jesus Christ, to other Gentile, non-Jewish audience, okay? People like you and me. I don't think we have any Jews in here, okay? Uh, so, you know, people like every, every one of us in this room, all right? So he had that kind of specific goal in mind, okay? And so some of the stuff that he reveals about Jesus is confronting the Jewish religion, okay? Jesus confronts a lot of the toxicity in the Jewish religion in the first century. Um, it be, chapter 4 begins with Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Okay, if you know this story, he goes up to the mountains, right? And he fasts for like 40 days. And while he is there, he is tempted uh, by the devil with three different temptations. All right? And then after those 40 days of fasting, he came down. And at the foot of the mountain is the Jordan River. And that's where he met John the Baptist. And he was baptized in that Jordan River. Okay? And then after he was baptized in the Jordan River, he walked 70 miles back up north to his hometown of Nazareth. 
So this is very deliberate, okay? Uh, in, the, in verse 16 of today's passage, when it says that he went up to Nazareth, okay? That's not a short trek, okay? It's a 70-mile walk. And so this was very deliberate that he went back to his hometown, okay? And he was going there with this purpose in mind. And he went to the very temple that he grew up and was taught by different rabbis and different scribes and different teachers, different Jewish teachers, okay? And now he was in this place where he was educating them. And so he pulls out the Old Testament, which is, you know, they didn't have the New Testament at the time, obviously, which the Jews called the Tanakh. And uh, they weren't in book form like this. It was in, in a scroll, okay? And he pulls out this long scroll, which is the book of Isaiah, which is a huge book in the Tanakh, right? And they have different scrolls for different books of the Tanakh. And he finds, and he's scrolling, and he's scrolling, and he's scrolling, and he finds this one specific place that he wanted to read from, which is the verses 18 and 19. And this passage that he is reading from in the book of Isaiah is very controversial, okay? Because by choosing this passage, he is confronting the toxic system that he grew up in. So uh, later on in Luke chapter 4, in verses 28 through 30, it said that all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. Why would they be furious? It's because they knew what Jesus was trying to do. He was trying to confront these toxic systems that existed. They were furious, okay? They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on, in which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. They wanted to murder him. That's how pissed off they were. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. <laughs> so he gets, he, he gets tempted for 40 days, okay? Uh, up in the mountainside, up in the wilderness. He gets baptized. He walks 70 miles back to his hometown of Nazareth to read this passage from Isaiah and to piss all of them off. <laughs> he pissed them off so much that they're like screaming and yelling and they're like, you know, pushing him out of the synagogue and they want to straight up like push him off a cliff. That's how pissed off they were because they knew exactly what Jesus was trying to do. They were furious because Jesus was exposing the toxic systems in which many of them, many of these religious leaders were benefiting from. They stole from the poor and they uh, filled their own pockets. Okay? They favored the rich and the, uh, the high level the, uh, people in society and they ignored the outcasts. They literally wouldn't even let them into the temple. So Jesus exposed this lack of balance that existed in the Jewish religion in the first century. And this reveals the first trait about toxic systems. Toxic systems are unbalanced, okay? Toxic systems are unbalanced. If you are living in any kind of system, uh, which you know most of us are, whether it's your workplace, whether it's your school, uh, it could be your group of friends. Your group of friends is a system, okay? Or it could even be your family, all right? If you are living or dwelling in any kind of system, uh, you will sense whether or not it is healthy, okay? The opposite of a toxic system is a healthy system. And uh, healthy systems are balanced and toxic systems are unbalanced. And when we're talking about this, we're really talking about justice, okay? And uh, you guys remember that um, 
statue uh, of Lady Justice who's blind. She's blindfolded and she's holding a scale, okay? Because that's what justice is, okay? It's about bringing balance, all right? I never understood that when I was a kid and I saw that you know, image of uh, Lady Justice holding the scale. Uh, but it's really just about like uh, balance, bringing balance to society. And when I was uh, a teenager and even when I was in college, uh, I, I had this really shallow understanding of the concept of justice. Initially, I thought justice was really about like just making everybody happy, okay? Jesus came to this earth like frolicking in the woods, okay? And uh, he just came to like bless everyone and like make everyone happy. And that's what I thought like justice was. But now that I'm getting older as a mature adult, I am understanding more and more that justice really is about bringing balance to society. And in order for justice to happen in society, we actually need to make some people unhappy. Okay, when Jesus is saying, uh, I have came to preach good news to the poor, that's actually bad news for greedy people. Okay, when he came to say, uh, I came to release the oppressed, that's actually bad news for those who are oppressing them. Right? To bring balance to society, it's good news for some people, but bad news for others. Uh, let me give you one uh, practical example. Okay, let's talk, uh, let's get real. Let's talk about salaries, okay? Let's talk about salaries, okay? Now, healthy systems does not mean that everyone's salaries should be the same, okay? Then we're talking about communism, and then communism does not work, okay? Uh, former USSR and North Korea kind of have proven that communism doesn't work very well. Um, so if certain leaders are putting more risk, they're putting in more effort, or they're bringing more value to an organization, I believe that they deserve a higher salary. But that only goes so far, okay? Uh, let me give you one kind of easy, obvious example, uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, the founder and chairman at Amazon who recently stepped down uh, as a CEO um, this year. I'm not sure how many of you are aware of this, but does anyone know what his salary was from Amazon as CEO in 2020? Yes, it was only like $81,000, okay? Which actually isn't that much, right? Considering CEO of Amazon, right? But most of his like uh, wealth came from his shares in Amazon stock. He owns about 10.3% of Amazon stock. Um, uh, you know, it might not sound like all that much, but you know, consider how huge Amazon is. So if you take into consideration uh, the wealth that he received from uh, Amazon stock, he made 1068 billion dollars last year okay he made over a hundred billion dollars in 2020 which is about 8.9 billion dollars a month which is about 321 million dollars a week <laughs> okay that's like ludicrous okay like no human being in the world deserves that kind of money that's just like ungodly <laughs> now quick question do any of you know anyone who's ever worked in amazon like in any form, okay? Yeah? Do you really? No. Okay, what do you know, or what did they say about it? Um, they didn't work there for very 
They didn't work there for very long because it's brutal, right? Yeah, the work, it's like, they just like work them to the bone, right? Is it the same person that you're thinking of, Jessica? Yeah, yeah. It's just a brutal work culture. It's like, it's, it's toxic, you know? So how is that balanced? That is not balanced at all, right? That is totally unbalanced. Um, but I also feel really hypocritical <laughs> for um, talking trash about Jeff Bezos because I, I still use Amazon. It's like so convenient. <laughs> but like, it's, now it's gotten to the point where like, it's hard to live without it. Um, but we try our best not to. If we can, we'll buy books from somewhere else or something. Uh, when toxic systems are unbalanced, uh, this is the second thing that uh, Jesus is trying to expose here. Uh, when toxic systems are unbalanced, toxic systems also minimize organizational health. Okay? They minimize organizational health. And I was trying to find the right words for this second point. At first, I thought like uh, toxic systems uh, value profit over everything else. But like if you're a business, like, I can't, you can't really blame businesses for valuing profit over everything else, right? That's what they do. Or, um, or if you're a church, you value people over everything else. But is that even bad, you know, valuing people <laughs> over everything else, right? But uh, I think a, a, a good way to express this is they minimize organizational health, okay? Uh, verse 18, let me read it for us again. Uh, Luke 4, 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Healthy systems actually want to hear the voices of those who are oppressed. Healthy systems actually want to actually uh, give a seat at the table for unrepresented people. Healthy systems want to lift up those who feel belittled. Toxic systems are primarily concerned with keeping the status quo. If you're ever in a situation where uh, you know that system is toxic, but people don't want to change anything, it's probably because the people in power want to retain their power. Okay? Uh, keeping the status quo is really being okay with the toxic system that's already there. Keeping those in power, uh, keeping those with power in power, and keeping those who are subordinate to stay in line. Shut up and do your job. Okay, that's the kind of attitude that these organizations will have. And lastly, uh, toxic systems are conflict avoidant. This is actually counterintuitive, okay? Because when we think of like a healthy system, we think like, oh yeah, no one should argue, right? No one should confront each other. But that's, that's actually not, okay? That's actually uh, like passive aggressive, okay? Healthy systems actually confront each other pretty often, okay? If, you're, if your neighbor or, or your peer or your colleague is, is doing something like that's toxic or unhealthy or arrogant or greedy, a healthy system ha allows you the space to confront that person. This is exactly what Jesus was doing. And look what happened to him. He was literally driven out the temple and they were trying to murder him. That is not a healthy system. Okay, a healthy system actually 
welcomes con confrontations, okay? Uh, I would love it if, if I'm doing something wrong, if I'm doing something shady, I, I would love it if people would confront me, okay? I mean, it's not pleasant, I don't enjoy it, but it, I know it's gonna make me a better leader, it's gonna make me a better pastor, and I wanna know if I'm doing something wrong, okay? Uh, now, this may be difficult for some of us to hear, uh, because many of us, like me, I'm a, I'm a peacemaker. Uh, if any of you are into the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram 9. I'm a peacemaker. Oh, yeah, nines! Nines in the house. Uh, and I hate conflict, okay? Just when I, when I know I have to confront somebody, I, like, mull over it for, like, hours. I'm, like, biting my nails. I'm, like, so nervous. I'm, like, pacing back and forth. I'm, like, oh, I don't want to do it, right? But I know it has to be done, okay? Um, justice doesn't mean simply being nice, okay? In order for justice to become a reality, we actually need to confront injustice. We need to confront evil. Darkness, despair, and doubt are regular stops on the journey of faith. Okay, those are regular stops in the journey of faith. If we expect the journey of faith to only be happy and certainty, uh, it will break you when you run into obstacles. And oftentimes, when we run into obstacles, we run away. We don't want to confront those evils. We don't want to confront those toxic behaviors. And so we run away. Many people just leave the church forever instead of trying to confront that leader head on with their toxic behavior. Many people will like cut off friendships. Do you know anyone like this? Like, do you, like they, they just don't want to confront their, uh, or get into this argument with their friends so much to the point where they will just ghost them. <laughs> okay? But healthy systems, healthy relationships actually welcome conflict. Um, I've been listening to this podcast uh, recently. I talked about this with Jake last week. Um, it's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Church. It's a great podcast, okay? If you're really into, like, the stuff that we're talking about today, that podcast is great. Um, now, Mars Hill Church started in 1996 in Seattle by pastors Mark Driscoll, Leif Moy, and Mike Gunn. It did relatively well uh, in its first few years, and their home church grew to like 350 people by like the year 2000, okay? But after 2001, the church exploded, okay? There was a pretty significant national event that caused this church to become incredibly popular. Does anyone know what that is? 2001? 9-11. Okay, now what does 9-11 have to do with this church? Or, uh, you know, that, that was in New York, you know, and this church is on the other side of the country in Seattle. Um, now, Marcel Church was really unique because they had this really unique brand of masculinity, chauvinism, and aggressive faith. <laughs> and they became incredibly popular after 9-11, okay? This is because prior to 9-11, the trend in American churches is that they were becoming more egalitarian, okay? Meaning, like, women were actually, more and more churches were, like, ordaining women to become, like, leaders. Um, they were becoming more emotionally intelligent, and they were becoming more of a shared leadership. This was the trend, okay? Uh, that was happening before 2001, but after 9-11, the American church did a major shift and they went back to becoming more complementarian, meaning uh, only male leaders, okay? 
they became uh, kind of, uh, they became to like, many of them began, began to preach like these like polarizing, insensitive, like almost um, antagonistic messages. And they were focusing a lot on very charismatic solo leaders. Uh, in 2013, however, um, the lead pastor of Marshall Church, Mark Driscoll and his wife uh, came out with a book called Real Marriage. Uh, but many of them accused them of being dishonest with book sales because, all of, because by this point in 2013, uh, they had multiple campuses, thousands and thousands of members. And so they bought a book for each one of their attendees. Okay? And by doing that, um, it automatically became a bestseller because okay? the church just bought it themselves. <laughs> Uh, not only that, uh, they were accused of plagiarism. Okay? They were accused of plagiarism. Um, they were claiming that a lot of the content from the book was their own, but they were actually just like cutting and pasting from uh, other stuff that they've read. Now, if this wasn't bad enough, uh, in 2014, several former members of Mars Hill Church came out with this blog, this really controversial blog that exposed many of the abuse of power of Pastor Mark Driscoll, exposing him of being abusive, of being a bully, and a toxic leader. Um, now, Pastor Mark Driscoll had since then apologized for that, and he ha was forced to step down from his role, and they pretty much shut down all Mars Hill churches like forever. Some of them just rebranded. They changed their name of the church. Um, but, you know, while this was going on, okay, while all of this abuse and plagiarism and bullying abuse of power was going on uh, the terrible part is is that they knew that it was happening okay all of the leaders definitely knew that it was happening and many of the church members knew also that it was happening just because like that's just what it was kind of famous for is being very aggressive but uh, they let it happen they let it go because they said look at the fruit they were okay with this toxic behavior because they were like look at the fruit Look at the fruit of this ministry. Look at how fast our church is growing, okay? Look at how popular our, 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 our podcast is, okay? Look at how popular our website is. So many organizations will ignore conflict. They will ignore or minimize organizational health. And they will ignore unbalanced systems because they have a result, okay? They still uh, make money. <laughs> Okay, they still like bring people through the door, okay, and they still like are, are fruitful. But we as people of God are actually called to confront these injustices. When we see it, we confront them. Don't run away from it. If you run away from it, if you keep running away from it, then unfortunately you might end up being one of these people who are considered uh, to be spiritual nuns. When you are dwelling within a toxic system, whether it's your workplace, school, group of friends, or maybe even your family, may you have the passion to bring balance to that place, the wisdom to bring about organizational health, and the boldness to confront injustices that make it toxic. I wanna close with this one passage uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses six and seven. This is uh, Apostle Paul writing to his uh, protege Timothy I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which dwells in you for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid but gives us power love and self-discipline
the Spirit of God gives every one of you power, love, and self-discipline. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes to see the toxic systems in where we dwell. Open our ears to hear the voices of those who are suffering, who feel belittled, who feel unrepresented. And give us the strength to be able to confront the injustices that we see. Lord, I know that many of us are in different seasons of life or we're in different uh, industries and we come from different families. And I'm grateful for that because you call us to come together, to be empowered, to be encouraged, to be inspired, to be motivated, to be fed by your Holy Spirit, and then to go out to our various places and to be agents of change. Lord, may we be that for our families, for our offices, for our workplaces, for our schools, for our friendships. To know when a toxic system is unbalanced, to bring about organizational health, and to confront injustice when we see it. We pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right.